0: Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 6, The New Kingdoms We last left Egypt in the throes of the Second Intermediate Period and under the thumb of the Hyksos, a Canaanite people who'd migrated into the Eastern Nile Delta. For long decades, the Hyksos and their 16th dynasty puppet kings in the north ruled in uneasy coexistence with the native 17th dynasty based in Thebes. In 1560 BC, that coexistence finally came to an end, when the 17th dynasty king Sekenenre Tau, dubbed the Brave, declared open revolt against the Hyksos' domination of Egypt. Unfortunately, Sekenenre Tau himself fell early in the conflict, when he was captured and ceremonially executed by the Hyksos king Apepi. His son and heir, Kamos, began his reign by launching a campaign against Nubia to the south. The Nubian kings of Kush had taken advantage of the period of divided rule to drive the Egyptians back to the first cataract of the Nile, and now controlled all land south of Elephantine. After reasserting Egyptian power in the region, and securing his southern flank, Kamos turned his attention back to the north, and began attacking the Hyksos-supporting garrisons of Middle Egypt. Following his death a short time later, it was left to his mother, Queen Ahotep I, and his younger brother, the ten-year-old Amos I, to carry on the War of Liberation. In Amos' youth, Ahotep acted as regent and protector of Thebes, keeping Upper Egypt strong, secure, and focused on the task of expelling the Hyksos. By the time he came of age, Amos had developed the ability and determination to avenge his predecessors. Upon taking power, Amos led a series of attacks against Memphis, Avaris, and other Hyksos strongholds, and eventually laid siege to their home city of Charuhen near Gaza in Canaan. Around 1532 BC, at the end of a hard-fought campaign, the Hyksos were finally expelled from Egypt, and King Amos I of Thebes inaugurated the 18th ruling dynasty, giving birth to the Egyptian New Kingdom. The early kings of the 18th dynasty were primarily concerned with restoring and consolidating control over all of Egypt. After expelling the Hyksos, Amos waged a series of lightning campaigns to permanently break the Hyksos power base in Canaan and seal the Syrian border, as well as restore Egyptian control over Nubia. During his reign, Thebes became the administrative capital of Egypt as its more central location facilitated control over both north and south. Thebes also became the religious capital of the country, and the worship of Amun began to supersede the cult of Ra based in Heliopolis. Before he died, Amos put the seal on another ancient Egyptian tradition, being the last native ruler to ever construct a pyramid for his tomb. Amos' son and successor, Amenhotep I, took power in 1526 BC and ruled for 20 years, during which he waged campaigns in Nubia and Libya. Amenhotep was succeeded by Thutmose I, a military man who married Amos' daughter, and served as co-regent during the later part of Amenhotep's reign. Thutmose I's short reign was marked by a series of brilliant military campaigns. Upon his coronation, Nubia rebelled against Egyptian rule. In response, Thutmose traveled down the Nile, led the battle against the rebels, and personally killed the Nubian king in hand-to-hand combat. After his victory, he had the Nubian king's body hung from the prow of his ship, which he sailed back to Thebes in triumph. He led a second expedition against Nubia in his third year, in the course of which he ordered a canal dredged at the first cataract, in order to integrate Nubia more fully into the Egyptian empire. Thutmose was forced to put down a rebellion by Nubia in his fourth year, during which he expanded Egyptian influence beyond the fourth cataract. In victory, he installed an Egyptian viceroy, or civilian administrator, of Kush, ensuring that the region could more easily be controlled by future Egyptian kings. Between his first two Nubian campaigns, Thutmose also managed to campaign farther north than any of his predecessors, apparently even crossing the Euphrates River near the city of Carchemish. Thutmose later returned to Egypt with strange tales of the Euphrates, that inverted water which flows upstream when it ought to be flowing downstream. The Euphrates was the first major river the Egyptians had ever encountered which flowed from north to south, opposite from the Nile. Thus the Euphrates became known in Egypt as Inverted Water. During this campaign, the Syrian princes of the region declared their allegiance, and Thutmose adopted the Near Eastern practice of ruling through vassal kings. However, after his return to Egypt, his Syrian vassals discontinued tribute, and began fortifying their territories against future Egyptian incursions. The lands of Canaan and the Levant, however, were brought firmly within the Egyptian sphere of influence during this period. Thutmose I also organized great building projects during his reign, including numerous temples and tombs. His greatest efforts were devoted to the Temple of Karnak. Up until this time, Karnak probably consisted only of a long road to a central platform, with a number of shrines along the side of the road. Thutmose drastically enlarged the temple through the addition of pylons, colossal statues, two obelisks, and a hippostyle hall, essentially a roof supported by columns. His daughter, the Egyptian queen Hatshepsut, would later erect two of her own obelisks inside the hippostyle hall. Thutmose I was also the first known ruler to be buried in the Valley of the Kings, though his mortuary temple has never been found quite possibly because it was either incorporated into or demolished by the later construction of Hatshepsut's mortuary temple at Deir el Bahari. When he died in 1493 BC, Thutmose I was succeeded by co-rule between his youngest and only surviving son, Thutmose II, and his daughter Hatshepsut. Since Hatshepsut was his daughter by the queen and Thutmose II by a minor royal wife, the two half-siblings were married to strengthen the succession. So, ew, but the times they were different then. During their co-rule, Thutmose II waged successful campaigns in Syria and Nubia. Perhaps recognizing the enormous ambition of his sister-wife, Thutmose II named his only son, Thutmose III, a mere child at the time, his successor prior to his death. Hatshepsut initially played along, taking up a position as regent to the boy king, but it wasn't long before she began to assert her own power. Hatshepsut's first major salvo was the construction of a massive mortuary temple at Deir el-Bahari, based upon, and adjacent to, the temple of the 12th dynasty ruler Mentuhotep. Her temple, aligned with the great temple of Karnak across the Nile, was dedicated to Amun as well as Hathor and Anubis, It was constructed in a colonnaded style unique in Egyptian architecture, and would not be matched in beauty, symmetry, and majesty until the classical architecture of a thousand years later. Temple reliefs, which show her in full kingly regalia, including a false beard, present the story of Hatshepsut's conception by Amun himself, implying her right to rule in her own stead. She also portrays her crowning as queen by her father Thutmose I, an event which, let's be honest, never really happened. Hatshepsut also erected two red granite obelisks at Karnak, cut and transported from quarries in Aswan, that were dedicated to the god Amun. She also strove to restore a number of Middle Egyptian monuments that had been destroyed by the Hyksos. For these and other actions, she is considered one of the most prolific builders in Egyptian history, testified to by the fact that most great museums of the modern world contain one or more examples of her statuary. While there is evidence that, early in her career, Hatshepsut led successful military campaigns into Nubia, the Levant, and Syria, the balance of her rule was far more peaceful than that of her 18th dynasty forebears. Her long, 22-year reign is mainly known for restoring trade networks severed during the Hyksos occupation, and launching major expeditions to the land of Punt and the turquoise mines of Sinai, all of which brought great wealth and prosperity to Egypt. But hey, wait a minute. Hadn't her brother-slash-husband said that their son Thutmose III was supposed to become king when he died? Whatever happened with that? Was the young Thutmose okay with his mom putting on a beard and running the whole show for 22 years while he waited patiently on the sidelines? Uh, no. Not at all. In fact, not even in the slightest. As Thutmose III grew older, he became more and more resentful of Hatshepsut's denial of his birthright. Upon her death in 1458 BC, in which he may have played a hand, Thutmose III commanded that all of Hatshepsut's monuments and inscriptions throughout Egypt be removed or destroyed. In particular, Hatshepsut's rule was stricken from all carved king's lists, as her reign was considered too disgraceful an episode to be recorded. Ironically, her granite obelisks at Karnak were perfectly preserved by the act of walling them up to hide their inscriptions. Thutmose III had spent much of his upbringing in the army And once he became king in his own right, he quickly opened up a Near Eastern campaign considered a masterpiece of planning and execution. During Hatshepsut's less militant rule, Egyptian influence in Syria and the Levant had slipped, and a number of local princes had transferred their allegiance to the nearby Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni. We briefly touched on the Hurrians last episode, but since they're going to be major players for around the next century or so, I wanted to discuss them a bit more. As you may recall, the Hurrians were a warrior tribe with an Indo-Iranian ruling class who had taken advantage of the power vacuum created by the collapse of the old Assyrian Empire to move into northern Mesopotamia, and then into Syria and Canaan, using their superior weapons and tactics to push out local tribes like the Hyksos. Sometime after the Hittite sack of Babylon in 1595 BC, and roughly contemporary with the rule of Thutmose I, the Hurrians had founded a loosely organized state called Mitanni, under their first king, Shutarna I. During the reign of Thutmose II and Hatshepsut, this kingdom, comprising northern Mesopotamia and most of Syria, had grown into a major regional power. In this, the Hurrians were following the general trend of the period when large territorial states of relatively equal power began to eclipse the previous system of small kingdoms and city-states. The exception to this trend was Canaan, where small city-states still endured. Consequently, the Canaanites typically ended up being bullied by their more powerful neighbors, and were often used as proxies in the conflicts of larger powers. Which brings us back to the current situation in the Levant where several former Egyptian vassals had recently been pressured to switch their allegiance to Mitanni. Thutmose III intended to bring these territories back under firm Egyptian control. Upon Thutmose's ascension in 1457 BC, the king of Kadesh advanced his army south to Megiddo, likely a Mitanni gambit to test the new Egyptian ruler's resolve. Both Kadesh and Megiddo were powerful Canaanite cities under Mitanni domination, The city of Megiddo, in particular, was important due to its location on, and control over, the main trade route running between Egypt and Mesopotamia. Together, the kings of Kadesh and Megiddo gathered a large Canaanite coalition of around a thousand chariots and ten thousand infantry, roughly equivalent to the Egyptian forces that Thutmose immediately brought north to confront them. Personally leading his forces in the most dangerous and direct, and therefore unexpected, approach to Megiddo, Thutmose was able to seize a superior position in front of the city, while the enemy forces were divided, blocking other more likely routes. The next day, Egyptian forces attacked in a concave formation with three wings that threatened both enemy flanks, and with Thutmose himself leading the assault from the center. The combination of superior positioning, superior maneuverability, and an early, bold attack broke the enemy's will, and the Canaanite lines collapsed almost immediately. Those near the city of Megiddo fled into it, closing and securing the gates behind them. Thutmose besieged the city for seven months, during which the king of Kadesh somehow managed to escape. When surrender was finally forced, the Egyptians spared the city and its people, but Thutmose did claim his reward. At Karnak, it's recorded that the victorious army took home 340 prisoners, 2,041 mares, 191 foals, 6 stallions, 924 chariots, 200 suits of armor, 502 bows, 1929 cattle, and 22,500 sheep, and the royal armor, chariot, and tent poles of the King of Megiddo. His tent poles? That's just cold. In addition, the defeated Syrian princes of northern Canaan were obliged to send Thutmose tribute, as well as their sons to be held as hostages in Egypt. But perhaps the greatest prize for Thutmose was that Egyptian control over the Levant was firmly restored. Under the rule of Thutmose III, a campaign was launched against Canaan, Syria, and or Mitanni every summer for the next 18 years, each involving extensive use of the Egyptian navy to move troops quickly and efficiently up the coast. As many as 350 cities, yes, 350, fell to Egyptian power, which was extended to the western shore of the Euphrates. Due to his numerous military victories over his long 54-year rule, Thutmose III was later termed the Napoleon of Ancient Egypt. Under his rule, Egypt developed a professional standing army and a large navy to transport it, as well as numerous military outposts for both border protection and internal security. Even into his 70s, Thutmose was still mounting punitive expeditions to Nubia and had reestablished Egyptian control as far as the Second Cataract. He also founded the provincial capital of Napata, near the small mountain of Jebel Barkal, henceforth considered the southern boundary of the new kingdom. His reputation as a warrior often outshines that as a builder, but Thutmose also completed major construction projects, particularly at Karnak, including raising two mighty obelisks that would later be carried off and re-erected in the dual capitals of Rome and Constantinople during the 4th century A.D., In his final years, Thutmose could rest content that he had extended and stabilized the frontiers of his empire, as well as enriched and embellished the temples of Egypt, and could pass all of this inheritance on to his son and heir. Amenhotep II, who took power in 1427 BC, also waged successful campaigns in both Syria and Nubia early in his reign notably defeating seven rebel princes of Kadesh, and having their bodies hung on the city walls at Thebes and Napata. These early victories were enough to cement a long period of relative peace that lasted through the remainder of his long rule. Not much is known of his son and heir Thutmose IV, who took power around 1400 BC, other than he performed restoration work on the Great Sphinx at Giza, and that his reign witnessed a shift in Egypt's relationship with Mitanni, the daughter of the Mitanni king Artatama I was given to Thutmose IV to cement a military and political alliance between the two nations, probably due to the common threat both faced from the growing power of the Hittites to the north. Remember the Hittites? The guys who took a chariot joyride down from Anatolia in 1595 BC just to sack Babylon for the fun of it? Good times. Well, since they're about to rejoin the ranks of major regional players, at the expense of the Mitanni, now is probably a good time to backtrack and talk about them a bit. Hittite civilization began in central Anatolia around 1750 BC. The first historical Hittite king was Hattusili I, who ruled around 1650 BC and founded the Hittite capital of Hattusas, situated in the center of the Hittite heartland atop a fortified hill. Under Hattusili I and his grandson Mursili I, the old Hittite kingdom initiated a pattern of southward expansion, possibly driven by the need for better agricultural lands. In 1595 BC, Mursili embarked upon his brief but devastating southern campaign, destroying the important Syrian kingdom of Yom Kod, centered on Aleppo, as well as sacking Babylon. Unfortunately, succession squabbles and family betrayals were common to the old Hittite kingdom, and Mersili returned home only to be assassinated by his brother-in-law, Hantili, who was himself murdered soon after. The Hittite kingdom slowly imploded in a series of contested usurpations, and remained weak and divided for the better part of the next two centuries. During this period, the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni conquered most Hittite territorial possessions. Enjoy it while it lasts, Mitanni. Hittite resurgence finally began in the early 14th century under the rule of several poorly documented kings, who reasserted Hittite dominance over central and southern Anatolia, and also forced the important Syrian city of Aleppo to shift its allegiance from Mitanni to the Hittites. These were likely the incidents that had triggered the budding Egyptian-Mitanni alliance during the reign of Thutmose IV. Hittite power would continue to grow during the long reign of his successor, Amenhotep III. Period documentation provides us with insights as to how the Hittites managed their growing new kingdom. When an area was conquered, the local ruler was retained and signed on as a vassal to the Hittite king, and typically married a female relative of the great king to seal the deal. As a result of this, after the first generation, a blood relationship between the vassals and great king helped to maintain cohesion between the center and periphery of the empire. Subject rulers were obliged to furnish taxes, troops, and present themselves annually at the capital, to pay tribute and renew oaths of loyalty. Much of this is standard operating procedure for empires down through history, but this happens to be an early and fairly well-documented example. Since they ruled through vassals, the Hittite state's borders shifted constantly. Aside from their western Syrian holdings, it's unclear whether they also controlled territories bordering the Black and Aegean seas, where powerful tribes such as the Gazga and kingdoms such as Ahiawa may have put the brakes on Hittite expansion in those directions. Culturally, the Hittites spoke an Indo-European language, wrote in Akkadian cuneiform, and worshipped a storm god named Teshub, who hurled lightning and rode in a chariot pulled by sacred bulls. Although belonging to the Bronze Age, the Hittites were also forerunners of the Iron Age, and manufactured iron artifacts from roughly this period onward. So, technologically advanced, warlike, and expansionist. Got it? Okay, now back to Egypt. The 39-year rule of Thutmose's son and heir Amenhotep III was one of the most prosperous and stable in Egyptian history. Amenhotep III, who won upped his father by marrying two Mitanni princesses, as well as two Babylonian princesses for good measure, spent the vast majority of his reign engaged in a number of great building works, including embellishing the Temple of Amun at Karnak and erecting a new temple at Luxor, also dedicated to Amun. He is also responsible for the construction of two massive stone statues that stood at the gateway of his mortuary temple, the so-called Colossi of Memnon. Under Amenhotep III, Egyptian wealth came not from the spoils of conquest, as it had under Thutmose III, but from international trade and an abundant supply of gold from local mines. Magnificent statuary and royal portraits from this period are considered among the finest ever produced in Egypt and Amenhotep III has the distinction of having the most surviving statues of any Egyptian ruler, over 250. Upon his death in 1350 BC, he was succeeded by Amenhotep IV, the ruler who would be known to history as Akhenaten. Akhenaten, the second son of Amenhotep III, began his reign in continuity with his father. He was crowned at the Temple of Karnak by the priesthood of Amun, whose growing power his father had been attempting to curb. Within the first few years of his reign, Akhenaten went much farther, introducing a new monotheistic cult of sun worship focused on the sun disk, the Aten, previously considered a minor aspect of the sun god ra Harakti. One crucial aspect of this new worship was that Akhenaten, who took his preferred name in the fifth year of his reign, was the only one who could commune with the Aten, eliminating the need for any priesthood. In year six, in an equally radical break with tradition, he closed all the temples of Amun and moved the royal court to a new capital in Middle Egypt, midway between Memphis and Thebes near modern El Amarna, named after himself and focused on worship of the Aten. The so-called Amarna period gave birth to a unique artistic style that emulated the king's somewhat unusual physical characteristics—elongated skulls, protruding stomachs, etc.—in a realistic fashion that broke with the rigid formality of earlier official depictions. As a historical side note, Akhenaten is also the first Egyptian ruler to be referred to as a pharaoh, a word meaning great house that formerly referred to the royal palace— a practice that would be carried on by all his successors. So, yay, I finally get to start using that term. The most valuable resources we have for our knowledge of this period are the Amarna Letters, a group of 350 tablets recording diplomatic correspondence between the great regional powers and their vassals during the later reign of Amenhotep III and the entire reign of Akhenaten. During this period, regional powers kept in almost constant contact with one another, with court scribes writing mainly in Akkadian cuneiform, the international language of diplomacy. The majority of the recovered letters were written by the Egyptian king to his vassals in Syria and Canaan, but around forty letters were to kings he considered as equals, the great kings. These were the rulers of Babylonia, Assyria, Mitanni, and Hatti, the Hittites along with a few other occasional members, typically those controlling valuable resources. In their correspondence, the great kings mainly discussed the exchange of precious goods and of royal women, both of which served to reinforce the ties between them. Political matters were seldom discussed between the great kings, in contrast to the letters from vassals to their overlords, which were almost exclusively political either testifying as to how loyal they were, or, more commonly, how treacherous rival vassals were. Power relations were often codified in treaties, always agreements between two men, never between two states, and always had to be renewed whenever rulers changed. Two types of treaties existed, between equal powers and between a great king and his vassal. The former were only drawn up for specific purposes, such as establishing peace after a period of conflict. The latter were far more commonly imposed, and typically instructed the vassal as to which great kings he must consider friends, which he must oppose, and the precise nature and level of the support he was responsible for providing his own great king. The pharaohs of Egypt, in particular, were very eager to obtain foreign women as queens. However, no Egyptian princess was ever allowed to marry a foreigner, a contradiction that often led to frustration between the nominally equal great powers. Aside from women, gold was also an important commodity for exchange, As only Egypt had gold mines, the other kings frequently sent gifts of horses, copper, crafts goods, etc., on the expectation that Egypt would reciprocate with gold, which it sometimes did and other times didn't. Through such correspondence and exchanges, and with greater or lesser direct input from the pharaoh, the entrenched bureaucracy continued to run the country while Akhenaten focused on courting his god. For most practical purposes, the management of the state came under two strong figures, I, vizier and father of the king's amazingly beautiful wife Nefertiti, and the general Horemheb, the king's cousin, both of whom would become pharaoh before the 18th dynasty ended. Much of the foreign policy during the Amarna period revolved around growing threats to Egyptian control of Syria, particularly by the Hittites. Under the 22-year rule of king, wish me luck with this, Supiluliyama I, who took power in 1344 BC, the Hittites reclaimed, rebuilt, and refortified their central Anatolian capital of Hattusas. They then quickly moved to take advantage of a dynastic dispute, featuring one party backed by the Hittites, the other backed by Syria, to invade Mitanni, occupy its capital Washukani, and turn western Mitanni into a Hittite vassal state thereby gaining control over much of northern Mesopotamia. In doing so, the Hittites immediately displaced Mitanni as the greatest threat to Egyptian power in the Levant. Before long, the Hittites began picking off Egyptian vassal states one by one, as they slowly extended their influence down the Mediterranean coast. In order to secure Egypt's northern border, Akhenaten opened up diplomatic relations with the Hittites, as well as with Assyria, who had spent the past few centuries as a Mitanni vassal state, but was now a resurgent power under its own middle kingdom. But more on the Assyrians next episode. Upon Akhenaten's death in 1335 BC, his younger brother Smenkakare briefly succeeded him, before the crown was eventually passed down to the young pharaoh Tutankhaten, known to us much better under the name he took shortly after, Tutankhamun. Before the rediscovery of his tomb early in the 20th century, Tutankhamun was considered a fairly minor and obscure king in the Amarna line, all of whom were omitted from the classic king's list maintained at Abydos and Karnak, as a backlash to the embarrassing period of Amarna rule. As recently as 2010 AD, DNA was used to prove that Tutankhamun was in fact the son of Akhenaten, and therefore his legitimate heir. It is also known that he spent his early years at his father's side at Amarna. As soon as the new king was crowned, notably in Memphis, a move was made back to the old religion. This move was fully signified in the third year of his reign, when the king and his wife both exchanged their Aten names for Amun names and reopened the temples of Amun throughout Egypt. The capital was also moved back to Thebes from Amarna, which was subsequently abandoned to the desert. Most of these decisions were probably made by the boy king's advisors, the same men who had held civil power during Akhenaten's reign, the Vizier I and General Horemheb. During Tutankhamun's reign, military expeditions were mounted to Libya, Nubia, and Syria Canaan, but he likely had no direct role in these campaigns. Tutankhamun died in 1323 BC, the ninth year of his reign, and was, I'm going to say, buried with some stuff? I might have to look that up. Anyway, his wife, Moon, wrote to Supiluliuma I, king of the Hittites, requesting one of his sons to marry, to help shore up her rule against the powerful and ambitious men around her. Not an entirely crazy idea, but Remember I mentioned earlier how the Egyptians had strong feelings about not marrying their royal women to foreigners? Well, that went doubly so in this case. The Hittite prince who made the attempt, Zananza, was killed on the orders of General Horemheb before he ever crossed the border. Supaluliyama, unsurprisingly, did not take this at all well, and unleashed Hittite forces against Egypt's vassal states in Canaan. While the campaign was successful, many Egyptian prisoners carried a plague that soon ravaged the Hittite heartland, and led to the deaths of both Suppiluliuma and his successor, Arnuwanda II. The next Hittite king, Mursili II, while a capable leader, became embroiled in rebellions in the north and west of his kingdom. For a time, all became quiet on the Hittite front. With her marriage plan foiled, Ankhesenamun Amun was forced to marry the vizier Ai, technically her grandfather, so again, you, who became the next pharaoh. But since he was already pretty old, his rule only lasted four years. In the first break from the Amarna line of kings, he was succeeded in 1319 BC by Horemheb. A man of middle age when he came to the throne, Horemheb continued the program to return Egypt to the status quo, in other words, restoring the temples and traditional privileges of the Amun priesthood. However, he chose priests mainly from the army, whose loyalty to him was more certain. Next on his to-do list was, let's see, ah, here it is, completely expunge from the historical record any trace of his four Amarna predecessors, and date his own reign from the death of Amenhotep III. Nice, tidy, easy-peasy. His long reign of 27 years was primarily spent in consolidation, reorganization, and reversing the changes of the Amarna period, with little evidence of external contact, military or otherwise. With his death in 1292 BC, the 18th Egyptian dynasty came to an end. So, wow, and to think I was originally going to cover the whole Egyptian New Kingdom this episode, and I haven't even gotten to Ramses 1, 2, or 3 yet. But the 19th Egyptian dynasty will have to wait for a bit. First, we need to catch up on what happened to Babylon after it got sacked, what kind of mischief the Assyrians have been up to, what's going on in India and China, And lastly, what the heck the Mycenaeans have been doing since they conquered the Minoans and became the premier power of the Aegean? Hint, it doesn't end well for a certain Anatolian city named Troy. All this, or as much as I can get to, next time on The Ancient World.